This is Revisioning Religion. Conversations on the intersection of spirituality and politics, shedding a new light on the place of religion in society. Greetings, dear listeners. Today I find myself in the company of Mark Vernon. Hello, Mark. Hi there. Very nice to join you. Mark, uh, today we will be talking about spiritual development and spiritual journeys as a personal process as well as a collective endeavor of humankind. We will normally be using Dante, Jesus and Greek philosophers as our guide, but perhaps you can first briefly present yourself to the listeners. So uh, who is Mark Vernon and what occupies his mind and heart? Well, I've become very occupied with this question of spiritual perception I'm inclined to think of it as much as anything else, because I think Dante, Jesus, other figures I'm interested in, William Blake, I live in South London, so William Blake is my local mystic. I think they all agreed that what in Christianity is called the kingdom of God, what William Blake called eternity, what Dante called paradise, they're all present, but it's hard sometimes to see that presence. Um, and with the extra twist that the difficulty of seeing is actually the way to see. Um, so, uh, and I think they all agreed on that as well. So I work as a psychotherapist, I write, I do podcasting myself. Um, but in a way, it all revolves around the question of seeing and expanded vision, um, using the imagination, personal reflection, understanding our cultural times, um, bringing all those elements together on this question of uh, divine perception. Lovely. Well, Mark, your latest book is Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. But one of your previous books, which I've read and enjoyed a whole lot a couple of years ago, was A Secret History of Christianity. It's about Jesus and the evolution of consciousness. I truly hope we'll be able to connect the contents of both books in this conversation about spiritual development. But we need to start somewhere, of course. So let's perhaps first turn to Dante. I guess for a lot of people, he's one of the those typical well-known historical figures of which everybody knows. He had a lot of influence in history, but uh, most people have probably never read his books and certainly not the Divine Comedy. And I must admit myself, a few years ago, well, a lot of years ago, when I was still in high school, I picked up the book, I started reading. I actually quite liked it, but for some reason I never finished. And I liked it because of him putting in all those other historical figures and, and how you could just sense and feel how everything was this great allegorical, metaphorical description of, of spirituality and, and the spiritual journey as such. But so um, what exactly drew you to Dante and what made you continue reading the book and not just reading the book, but writing a book about it yourself? Well, like yourself, you know, I was aware that he is one of the spiritual greats in the Christian tradition. And so for a long time, I guess, felt I'd love to be able to get into that and made several failed attempts. But there were two things that unlocked the doors um, and helped me to follow him through the forest. Um, one was a reading group um, 
run by an organisation based here in London called the Temenos Academy, which was founded by the poet Kathleen Rain. And Kathleen Rain used to say that it's very easy in the modern world to learn about figures like Dante. You know, you can read about his significance in history as a literary figure, the Renaissance, and so on. But it's very hard to learn from Dante to treat him as someone who might have something to teach us. Mm. And so we did this reading group over many weeks and had a brilliant teacher who week by week opened up what each Terset was saying. And that combined though with a moment where I was really ready to receive it because I was at a point in my own psychotherapy actually where I was in a pretty dark place. Um, A lot of the factors that had haunted my life you know which I knew something about and didn't know a lot about as well um, were very present and so it 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 touched me very personally too that this journey down and then the journey out and up um, was something that in a different way but parallel ways I felt I was experiencing so that set me on a course where I basically read the Divine Comedy through about once a year say read it a few times um having found the way in it's one of these books that speaks more and more and more to you every time you turn to it um and then about two years ago i thought well i'm going to read it again but maybe i can do some podcasts and so i did a podcast per canto a hundred in total and then someone said look surely this is a book um and so there was another kind of run through it all rewriting um honing, polishing, all that. Um, And then the book came out. And it was good timing as well because it happened to be the 700th anniversary of Dante's death in 2021 um, when the book came out last year. Lovely. So it was a very personal thing that drew you in and it captivated you. So um, you've written a whole book about it and done so many podcasts. So there's lots to learn there. But if you pick out maybe one or two of the the greatest wisdoms that you think that other people might also find useful when they read Dante and and kind of put it on top of their own spiritual journey. So what do you think would be the the two main things that that you can learn from him? One is holding out that suffering is part of the path to transformation. Um It's one of these things that's easier to say, but it's hard to do, especially when you're in the suffering. But reading the Divine Comedy began to give me hope that that might be the case. And the summary is that whilst people in hell, in the the inferno, experience suffering as trapping, um, like there's no way out. In purgatory, people still suffer, but they begin to trust that if they can learn to lean into the suffering a bit more it actually starts to change because parts of themselves start to open up through that process. And then in Paradise, um, where Dante continues to make mistakes, continues to learn, in a, in a way continues to suffer. So, for example, he goes blind at one point. Um, but in that moment, you trust wholly that that is the path into greater light. And so... It's not that you welcome suffering, because that flips and turns it into something masochistic, 
but that when suffering happens, which of course it does, um, you're able to say yes to it in a much fuller way and qualities of life like love, like light, like the good, the beautiful and the true um, show up in the midst of the suffering mm -hmm. in a way that was just impossible when you were in hell. Um, so that that's one thing which I got from Dante, you know, to trust that this path is going somewhere. Um, and then the other thing is um, a transformation in the experience of time um, comes to mind when you ask that question, because in hell, people are terrified by the past and the future because of what they've done or what they expect will happen to them. And then in purgatory, they start to realise that if they can trust the present, that's the moment when things actually change and they aren't condemned just to follow the same old path again and again and again. New possibilities emerge when you can pay attention to the present. And then in paradise, there's the sense that everything is present and that we're invited to know more and more of that presence in the here and now. And so the future ceases to matter, actually, because there's a sense that what's happening now is the fullness of life. Um, so again, you know, these things are easier to say, hard to really know, you know, and it's a whole lifetime to really know these things. But the sense of time changing um, was another really key thing that I began to sense in the Divine Comedy and thought, oh my goodness, maybe I can know that myself as well. That's interesting because partly that's, let's say, a, an, a spiritual idea which is very popular at the moment. At least the living in the now is, is like a, a very popular phrase all over, and specifically someone like Eckhart Tolle has, a, has spread that around with his books. And so a lot of people would agree, like you say, knowing it is one thing, doing it is another. But those kind of popular ideas about living in the now, they often have this tendency, in my experience, to act as if living in the now is nothing but fun and grace and niceness. While what I hear you say is that there's this also this very Christian side to... Dante Christian in the sense that the idea might not be new in itself, um, but he, he explicates it very well, where suffering becomes a purifying element of life. Um, so I'm just thinking, would, would that be what makes Dante so great for you, that he balances those two, that it's partly the living in the now that a lot of people can relate to, but that he combines it with a more thorough understanding of suffering? Yeah, I think that the present interest in the now, actually, I don't think this is in Eckhart Tolle. I think that he's a very um, sophisticated and profound spiritual writer, actually. Um, but it certainly can become a kind of power of now light um, mm -hmm. when it gets combined with positive thinking. Yeah. which is a huge movement in modern psychology. Um, and the trouble with positive thinking, I think, is that it makes happiness a direct and explicit goal. Yeah. And so you're encouraged in the now to practice the tools that will bring you happiness. 
And whilst there's some truth in tools, you know, like keeping a gratitude diary, um, these things which are quite well known now, they risk always instrumentalizing the now so that the now is supposed to be the moment that delivers you something. Um, and if you do the practices, you know, well enough, long enough, then, you know, there'll be a return on your investment. Um, so it, there's a couple of things creeping in there. One is this very modern idea that happiness is a kind of right. And secondly, that if we do the right things, then it will come our way. Um, so it's strangely isolating from wider reality. Whereas in, actually, I think it's in all great spiritual traditions, but it's certainly in Christianity. Um, the now is the moment to step into the world that's uh, larger than you are, that's bigger than you are, um, but which you're intimately part of. And because that is so subtle in one way, difficult in another, um, you know, you're being invited to step into something that you maybe get a glimpse of, but don't fully know. Um, and so guides are really important. Um, so it's not that you don't want it, but it's by definition, you don't fully, you don't really quite know it yet. Mm. And so it feels like um, a process of dying to be reborn. And I think the significance of suffering is um, not actually a kind of purging. And I don't think Dante actually thought that. You have, always with Dante, you have to remember that what first meets the eye, he's just using as a kind of invitation to discover what's really going on. Um, what is more happening, I think, is that suffering, like beauty, so the converse, and it's beauty rather than happiness, beauty cuts through our sense of ourselves and makes us feel the connection with others or the world around us, which is a very common experience. You know, it's both when you see a beautiful scene, but also when you know suffering and you really care. That's when you realise that life is bigger. Um, and so it's that penetration of our soul, if you like, that can then be this invitation to step into that wider life more and more fully, to know that being more and more fully prompted by experiences of beauty or suffering. I think that element gets lost in the rather instrumentalised approach to the now um, that you see particularly in positive psychology. It's not all wrong, but I think it, it's not enough, you might say. Mm -hmm. It's lovely that, uh, um, I'm thinking, 16th, 15th century, Dante... What, what was he? Fourteenth uh, century, died in thirteen twenty-one. It's uh, really early humanism. Um, well, and yeah, he's the, he's the first Italian, at least maybe the first person, but certainly the first time to use the word modern. So he's okay. you know he's 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 a contemporary of figures like Giotto, um, who starts painting people as individuals in the way that we would recognise. So definitely the birth of modern humanism, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, interesting. What I was going to say was, um, okay, it's interesting how he can inform a spiritual trend of today in a certain way. But in his own day, how unique was he? Because if we're talking about humanism, we can historically kind of place him as one of the first. But 
within his time, this whole idea of spiritual growth was nothing new in itself. So how, how do you place him within the wider scope of whatever was uh, playing around in, in, in a spiritual sense in his days? Well, he was a genius, you know, so he was unique in that respect, but he was also very much a person of his times, partly a person of very difficult times. You know, he writes the Divine Comedy in the last 20 years of his life when he's been forced into exile and can't return to Florence on pain of being burnt alive. So he's lost everything materially. He, for a long time, had lost touch with his family as well. Interesting. Um, What what was the reason behind his expulsion? He, um, it's the, the Italian peninsula, of course, wasn't a single country. It was a whole network of city-states with secular powers vying with ecclesiastical papal powers. And it's a complicated old story, um, which I don't actually know the full details of, but broadly speaking, Dante is on one side of this dispute and even his own side splits. Um, so he, he was on the side of the Guelphs against the Gebelines, and then the Guelphs split into the White and the Black Guelphs, and he's on the wrong side of that. There, it's a you know it's a horrible civil war yeah. um, where these splits occur, and you know sometimes said that civil wars are the most brutal wars. Yeah. Uh, and um, the upshot is is that he um, is expelled from Florence um, by the opponents that were the allies. Okay, so really yeah. the, the intricacies of, of politics of the day. Um, so, yeah. okay, back, back to his um, his spiritual stance and how it relates yeah. to other people. But you see, this, this I think this, this experience of exile um, is partly what prompts yeah. him to go much deeper than he had before. Before his exile, he was already known as a politician, um, which is partly why he's exiled. Um, but he was also known as, in a way the great poet of his day already. He had created what's called the Sweet New Style. And before he wrote the Divine Comedy, he probably still would be remembered in the history of literature, and maybe not to the extent that he is now. But nonetheless, um, you know, many people might know that he wrote um, a work called the Vita Nova um, and other poems. Um, But the exile prompts him to, well, as he puts it at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, wake up in the dark woods um, midway through the course of our life, as he puts it, um, and ask about everything all over again. And it's that crisis that precipitates um, the most profound revelation. Um, and again, that, you know, that's part of um, this hard, hard theme, but amazing, tremendous theme of taking up your cross. Um, would be another Christian expression for it. Um, it's often in the most difficult times that the greatest realizations about life come about, and Dante is certainly in that tradition as well. So that makes him personally very unique, or the story behind the the, the Divine Comedy is personally very unique. But again, I'm, I'm asking the question a bit because I know that in those centuries I'm not a big expert, but I know that things that we would consider or would label as esotericism today or occultism and broadly or generally speaking simply the the search for the inner divine and the search or or the spiritual journey as such was a very um, alive topic among a lot of intellectuals in 
the Italy of the days of Dante and the centuries before as well. So, so was he connected to that kind of groups and and spiritually searching people as well or not? Yeah. So he um, lives at the same time that, for example, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, um, the Beguines, this lesser known but a very extensive yeah. women's movement across Europe um, is has is become well established and is flourishing. Um, so this idea that spirituality might spring from the roots up and not just be the prerogative either of the church or of kind of spiritual elites mm-hmm. like traditional monks and nuns, um, it, that's very much changing the world. It's very much part of what seeds the Renaissance. Um, and then within that are more esoteric traditions, undoubtedly, you know, they've always existed. Well, the extent to which Dante is directly connected with, for example, the Knights Templar um, is debated. Um, one of his guides in life is a chap called Bruno Latini, okay. um, who has been connected to the Knights Templar. Um, but um, interestingly, he meets Bruno in the Inferno rather than okay. in, say, the Purgatorio or the Paradiso. So I think that's saying that whilst Bruno was very significant, Bruno didn't fully understand what he was engaging with. Um, and so that, for me, puts those kind of esoteric traditions, they're present, but they're to one side in Dante, I think. And what's much more significant for him is, in a way, remaking mainstream Christianity because it had become so lost and corrupted by its engagement with the world. Um, it had lost um, paradisal vision. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Divine Comedy can speak now, because whilst Christianity in many parts of the world is growing and flourishing, not so much in in the Western world, but certainly lots of other, other parts of the world, I think one of the things which has happened to modern Christianity is it's lost touch with its mystical traditions. Um, and so Dante is definitely coming from that. Um, and, and by mystical, I mean that in a way, the most important site of conversion, epiphany, is inward, is within. It's not just about social change for all that that's good. Um, it's not just about cultural practices um, for all that that's good. Um, it's about personal transformation that then are the wellspring to social and cultural transformation. Um, and we've rather lost touch with those wisdom traditions. Um, but Dante is certainly one way to find their life again. Yeah, um, to find our way back to those wisdom traditions. Well, if I pick up on the word wisdom traditions, um, it, it kind of brings us back to your book about the secret history of Christianity as well, when you speak about mysticism as the focal point and so on, and the wisdom traditions in themselves, because before I moved to Christ and Christianity and what it did at the time, um, first the philosophers, because I think also when we speak about Dante and about humanists and so on, there's this ingrained idea in wider society, not among scholars and academics, but in wider society, you've got this idea. You had the Greeks and those had rational philosophy. Then came Christianity. That was all dogmatic and anti-rationality. So it, it got rid of the Greeks and the Romans and and it suppressed everything which wasn't Christianity itself. And then 
all of the sudden in the in the Renaissance, you got people like Dante and others who kind of bring back those ideas from Greeks and Romans and the world becomes rational again and we've got a scientific world now which is a lot better than a religious world. So that's a bit the, the grand narrative, let's say. Um, but the whole narrative on many points is, is very... Um, unstable to say the least or problematic in a historic sense um, and it starts from the beginning this whole idea of the philosophers as nothing but rational people that in itself com is completely contradicted by history again i'm not the biggest expert but i know you have taught courses about uh, philosophers and you've written books about greek philosophy and so on so first, maybe let's go there, because when you say the wisdom traditions, that's the whole point. The, the philosophers themselves were also not merely interested in rationally thinking about the world and classifying everything in a, in a matter that modern science would do today. Their whole endeavor, even if it sometimes became rational, was completely, um, let's say, embraced by a, a, a a larger search for deep inner wisdom and even certainly in the, uh, how do you call it, the, the mystery traditions and so on. So about a certain mysticism leading you towards a certain point which was spiritual like you're describing it. So so maybe can you elaborate a bit on that to make it clear to the listeners as well how that philosophy wasn't just your uh, what people consider to be a, an endeavor to make a rational world. Yeah, it's a it's a really important corrective. Um, actually, I think that even in academic philosophy, um, the ancient philosophers are still treated as if they were just rational figures, even if people are vaguely aware that there was more going on than than just that. Uh, but let, take a quite a well known phrase of Aristotle, one of the key figures. Um, where he makes this remark that in wonder all philosophy begins and in wonder it ends. And nowadays that's taken to be, oh, isn't it amazing? Um, as if it's a sort of just a kind of pleasure trip. Um, but this was a very important thought for Aristotle because when you ask yourself why does thinking about life, contemplating the natural world, thinking about yourself even... Um, produce a sense of wonder. Aristotle knew, and this was very standard in the ancient world, that that was because you were experiencing your cognitive capacity, your aesthetic sensibilities, your mind, if you like, your person, resonating with the world and all that is. Um, as someone who was very influential on me uh, in terms of getting into this understanding, a figure called Owen Barfield, one of the great friends of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Um, Barfield said that Aristotle woke up to the experience that his mind fitted the cosmic mind like a hand fits into a glove. And so there's that a moment of wonder about that. But then it's also an invitation to develop this resonance, to fit yourself more and more to reality. And that means that philosophy is primarily a way of life. It's about your personal transformation, cultivating virtues, not because that makes you into a, a goody two-shoes, but because that expands your contact with reality. So you know more and more. And so working on yourself was the primary task of the ancient philosophers. Um, you know, nowadays, 
certainly since, well, quite recently, actually, it's really only since the 19th century, the model of knowledge has completely changed where, because of science, the idea is that you extract yourself from what you're studying as much as possible to gain what's called objectivity. Um, but right up until the 19th century, that would have been regarded as hopeless. Um, it may give you certain insights that enable you to manipulate the world and so produce tremendous technology, um, which you know is not to be sniffed at. Um, there's definitely an advantage in that. But it's at this great price of feeling you become uncoupled from the world at the same time. And so, as Barfield also noticed, um, the more power we've gained with the material world, the greater the experience of its meaninglessness has grown. And this is because we've adopted this new approach to knowing, which values objectivity, disconnection, stepping back. Whereas the ancients would always say, and the medieval people would always say, no, um, it can be known intimately within yourself, the nature of all things. And that means working on yourself. And so wisdom traditions are primarily about personal transformation and social transformation. Yeah, and they're not only about personal transformation. In my view, they're also about the divine. I mean, about God. Christianity was, but... I mean, uh, Greek philosophy mostly was as well. Uh, terms like logos and so on were basically words to try to describe a divinity. Um, would you see a, a difference in how the divinity was perceived in Greek philosophy and, let's say, the Jewish tradition of those days in which Christ was born and raised? Yeah, so there's a parallel sentiment, I think, in the Hebrew tradition. But what happens in both the Hellenistic, the Greek tradition and the Hebrew Jewish tradition, is that as this personal transformation starts to take hold in the philosophers amongst the Greeks, in the prophets amongst the Hebrews particularly, so we're talking about from the middle of the first millennium BC up to the birth of Christ, is that this personal transformation leads to a transformation of the extent that the, the sense of reality and in particular the birth of monotheism um you know the the older parts of the hebrew bible don't have monotheism um it's a relatively late development in the hebrew bible but that's because it's also about the transformation of the hebrews and the way that barfield summarized this that i found very very helpful is that the sense of being an individual starts to form. An individual that has a kind of centre of um, your own, rather than, say, your centre being on your family or on your city-state, um, which was the older way of thinking about where you, your identity came from. And when that sense of being able to say, I am, integrates enough, the divine I am, the divine oneness starts to be perceivable to you. I just don't think that monotheism was perceivable to people. Um, it was much more natural to think in polytheistic ways because your identity was sort of spread around. So it was much more natural to think of deities as spread around as well. Deities of place, deities of time, um, deities of the family, um, of the ancestors and so on. But with this kind of gathering in that 
leads up to the birth of Christ, who becomes the one person who's fully human and therefore fully transparent to the divine, as Christianity came to see it, um, this perception of the one God um, becomes possible too. So you see it in Platonism. You know, Plato himself does not talk about um, the one, which became standard amongst the Neoplatonists um, after um, Christianity. Um, and similarly, in the Hebrew Bible, it's only the latter phases. If you're into it, it's it's sometimes known as um, Deutero-Isaiah, um, from Isaiah about chapter 66, I think it is, where suddenly it's not just that Yahweh is one God amongst many, um, but that Yahweh is said to be the only God. And if you say that Plato didn't have the concept of the one, what was his concept of the divine? Because it's it's Plato is another example of somebody that... In many respects, if you just look at what we term religion today, you'd have to call him or label him as very religious as well because of certain convictions and so on. He's one of the prime examples of the rational philosophy of the ancient Greeks, while at the same time he had all these ideas about uh, divine beings and, and the divine essence of life being present within. So if you say he wasn't monistic or monotheistic, what was he in a, in a theological sense? Yeah, he was, I think he was a kind of emergent monotheist. And um, so it's clear in Plato's own writings that he realized that if you follow the path of love and intellect, follow its kind of spirals, the desire that draws you towards that which is good, beautiful and true and use your intellect to become clearer and clearer about the good, the beautiful and the true, they tend towards a unity. Um, so, for example, in the symposium, Socrates has this great conversation with Diotima, who's a priestess of love. And she says to him, I don't know whether you'll understand this. She calls it a higher mystery. Um, but if you follow the path of love, it leads to a revelation of not just beautiful things, but that which is beautiful in itself. So there's a sense of things coming together into a perception of the one. Um, figures like Heraclitus and Parmenides, pre-Socratics too, had said, well, Heraclitus puts it rather nicely. He says, if you listen to the Logos, you'll realise that all things are one. Um, so there's this sense of it um, emerging um, in figures like Plato. Um, I think another way that this comes up um, is that Plato clearly um, had a particular devotion to the god Apollo and Socrates felt that he had a kind of direct contact with the god Apollo. But I think the reason why it was Apollo and not, say, Athena, um, which might have been more natural for Athenians, um, is because Apollo was the god of light and by following the light you find your way to the unity of all things. But also the Greek word Apollo means Apollos. It means not many. Um, you know, hoi polloi is the many, a phrase we still use. So Apollos is not many. Um, so there was something they were intuiting in the traditions associated with Apollo that was actually leading to monotheism as well. That's very interesting. Now, maybe I have to uh, summarize a bit for the listeners w where I'm trying to go, because we started with Dante, and, and the whole point for me was to, to place him in a wider tradition or in a longer tradition of wisdom search and of spiritual development and spiritual journey. So although he writes a, a very nice book about how you can deal with that spiritual journey, 
he is in a sense uh, he, there's a lot of precursors to him in what we would call normally uh, philosophy and and religion and so that the whole idea of a, of uh, trying to go and trying to to walk your own path as a spiritual journey is in itself nothing modern which is something that a lot of people I uh, tend to believe because they think that religion kind of um, imposed a lot of ideas on everybody and you, you didn't have your own choices and you couldn't create your own spirituality. But if you look in history, this idea of walking the spiritual path is very much there all the time. But so what I want to do now by turning back to the philosophers and what you're saying, there's this emergent uh, monotheism is to see whether the personal spiritual journey is indeed linked to the spiritual journey of humanity as such, because that's partly what your book about the secret history of Christianity tries to write. And for me, it comes very close to what is often called the, the whole idea of the actual age. Um, and it's an idea in theology that I don't fully support. But I must admit that your book was one of the first to almost get me there. So um, perhaps you should first explain a bit more what exactly you see as this line going from being um, taken up in the in the whole of nature, in the whole of existence, and thus also of various divinities going to monotheism as coupled to individuality as a new experience and then uh, where it leads us now <laughs> if it's possible to summarize that whole trajectory in in short way and then I'm gonna try and 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 put some counter arguments just to see how far we can stretch the idea because I'm still not completely certain that we can see an evolution in in humanity I, I have the tendency to think that Humanity always had two tendencies clashing with each other, a communal tendency and an individual tendency, and those have always tried to find a certain balance. That's more my, let's say, spontaneous approach. But so first, put your argument on the table, let's say, and then, then we can discuss about it further. You might not be wrong about that. Um, certainly in written history, so say going back 3,000 years, um, there are always figures that withdraw and then return to their communities, bringing a new perception, a new insight. Um, this is, in certain circles at least, celebrated in the so-called Axial Age, which is about 500 BC again. So figures like Socrates, um, figures like the Buddha in India, figures like Lao Tzu in China, and others are named. Um, seem to have all had this pattern where they withdrew from communal life, which at the time, you know, it's still the case now really, but certainly at the time was regarded as a very suspicious thing to do. And so often these axial figures came to bad ends because um, they upset people as much as introduced new life. Um, but they seem to have seeded a new perception Often they themselves saying that it was actually the older perceptions just remade. Um, I mean, I think Plato, for example, thought that he was remaking the old mystery traditions. He realised that they weren't working as well as they used to, um, and so sought to remake them so that they sat more closely with this much more powerful sense of being an individual. 
um, that uh, was certainly changing. You know, he, he lived in the time of democracy in Athens. That's an easy way of putting it. It's a complicated business, ancient democracy. It's not really the same as modern democracy, but nonetheless, it still um, puts a stress on the demos, on the peoples, rather than, say, on a king or on um, uh, some kind of uh, tyrannical ruler. Um, yeah, so there is this sense, I think, of withdrawal and return. And that's important, I think, because that in itself, I think, broadly mirrors the experience of being human, which is in a way to be sort of born into life with all its struggles and difficulties um, and seeming separation from the source, from the origin, from God, but that the path is always one of return, but return with difference. So it's return in particular with consciousness of the nature of reality. That's in a way, I think, our deepest calling as human beings is that um, we can not just return to God, um, which is going to happen regardless, I think. I mean, it's another facet of Dante. I think one of the things which he shows is that hell is not actually a place of eternal damnation for those who somehow get it wrong. Um, he's wanting to, to go there to see the truth of Christianity, which is it's a universal religion. Um, we're all returning to the divine. How could it be otherwise if you believe in one God? Because the one God holds and contains all being. Um, as St. Paul puts it, you can't actually become separated from the God, even if you feel that you are. But what we're invited to is not just to sort of be drawn back as if we're kind of on strings like puppets, um, but to come back freely, um, desiring, knowing of these tremendous things. And so sharing in them more and more fully as well. And I think that that's where this notion of evolution comes in. It's not progressive evolution. It's not like over the millennia we get better and better at it. Um, and it's not Darwinian evolution. It's not like random things happen and sometimes it gets better, sometimes it gets worse. Um, it's more a sense of how, I don't know, you might say that in the kind of abundance of creation... There's myriad ways of returning to the divine that you can see. I mean, you might spot it as spring occurs and flowers appear reaching for the sun. And there's a kind of echo of return to the divine in that new life, which, of course, is why spring and Easter and so on are so closely associated. Um, but we human beings have ways of doing that now that connect with who we are now. But I think that our ancestors in the past had ways of doing that too, um, that in some ways were similar, in some ways were different. Um, you know, so it's why we can still read a figure like Plato, who's, you know, two and a half thousand years old now, or indeed the Bible, you know, which is two or three thousand years old. And it can still speak to us, but we have to make it some our own now. Um, we don't just um, parrot the Bible to make it live. You have to know what these sayings were getting at then so that they can be re-expressed for now. So it's this kind of continual process of um, movement that's, well, Barfield again, he said it was U-shaped. So it's not linear progress like a line. It's not even quite a spiral, although there's some truth in the spiral. Um, it's more like a U-shape and we tend to fall, feel we're falling away and realise in the falling away that actually we're returning. But is it a U-shape without a connection? Because if you 
if you continue the U shape, you get a circle kind of. So would he see it like a circle, like you always return to the same point? Or no, it might not be linear, might be U shape, but you go from one mode of being to another mode of being. No, I think uh, it's it's a return, but with difference. Um, and it's the difference is always expansion. Um, you know, divine life is always abundant. There's always more. Um, that's what it is to live in eternity or to live in infinity. And there are echoes of that expansion, therefore, across history. Um, they're echoes or reflections of the true expansion into the divine, I think. But, you know, an obvious one would be that, well, you know, you and I are talking about these things. Um, I mean, I sort of used to be a religious professional, I suppose, in that I was a priest at one point, um, but I'm certainly not a religious professional now. I don't live in a special community, um, uh, neither, I guess, do you. Um, and we're speaking very openly about these things as best we can to anyone that wants to hear. Um, we're trying to make public things which wouldn't have been at all public um, in in former uh, periods, partly because you know people couldn't read, say, um, or they didn't have access to um, the places where these teachings were discussed. So that is one way in which there's a kind of progress, there's a kind of opening up. We can all aspire to be mystics now, um, which we'd have thought to be a bit silly in the past. But that's only an echo, I think, of the divine um, abundance where, again, you know, Paul says this, God will be all in all. And so we can partly see how that's emerging across history. Um, but I don't think we should make it become a historical program. Um, in, in a way, the, the way the history changes and sometimes it progresses, sometimes it regresses, um, is a, a byproduct of the bigger spiritual story. Let's go to the bigger spiritual story then. We've got those uh, nuances uh, in the back of our minds. It's not a linear progression, but still there is a spiritual story. So if if you would lay that out as simply as you can, what, what would be the main components? In Christian terms, it's creation. It's all about creation. Um, one of the things that Dante learns in Paradise is that um, that's really God's primary and almost only relationship to the creation. Um, that if you come to realise that nothing can separate you from God, then the question becomes, what's the meaning of the times it feels that you're separated from God? And one main Christian response to that has been, because you've done something that is incompatible with divine life and so that's the 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 main strand of redemption and the idea that christ came to bridge the gap that had opened up between us and god uh, and dante recognizes the wisdom in that because he wants to take our separation seriously um he want, he's definitely taking evil darkness um pain and struggle seriously um, but by going into that more, he realises that, well, as, as Beatrice says to him, it's strangely a mistake of perception that lies behind all that. Um, it's not that God has a problem with evil or darkness. God is quite capable of holding the evil and the darkness as 
the light um, and the goodness. But what the problem is, is how we can find our way freely back to the light and the goodness. But when we turn towards the light and the goodness, we realise that God is already offering the light and the goodness to us um, in creation, in making more, um, in incarnation, in pouring divine life into the creation. Um, And so it's these moments, which are actually much bigger in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. If you go into an Eastern Orthodox church, you'll quite struggle to find a a cross, for example. Um, You'll probably find one somewhere at the back of the church, but it more or less certainly won't be right at the front of the church, as it is in certainly, say, Catholic churches. Um, You'll see instead in Orthodox churches maybe a figure of the Virgin with the Christ figure being born in her womb, or you'll see a figure of Christ Pantocrator, um, the Logos that is always already running through all things or being born in all things, um, images of creation and incarnation. Um, And so Dante, for Western Christianity, is a really important teller of that biggest story, that biggest spiritual story. Um, a kind of corrective to distortions, I do even say, in the Christian story that can dominate in the West. You, you mentioned Beatrix, so so very quickly as a as a little aside, who is she? Because I, I don't think all listeners will know. And how important is she? If she is the one teaching Dante that kind of stuff, what, what's her position in the in the Divine Comedy? So Dante has various guides um, that help him take these steps into what he doesn't know through the Divine Comedy. And there are two uh, main guides he has. One is Virgil, who meets him first of all. And Virgil is the Roman poet. um, And so it's like two poets together exploring these things. And that's a good starting point for Dante. But Virgil tells Dante that he's actually been sent by Beatrice as his guide. And Beatrice is the woman who first ignited love in Dante, erotic desire. Um, We're told that they met when they were still quite young and he instantly fell for her on the streets of Florence. They didn't really know each other in life, though. Um, But as infatuation can, it sort of lit a flame that never quite extinguished in Dante's life. Um, And so that was the light that he tried to follow through his life. And I think the reason why Virgil appears first and then Beatrice only appears to Dante in the paradise, um, is that if Beatrice had appeared too early in all her glory, in all her beauty, um, it would have been overwhelming for Dante, and he would have just been sort of floored by the experience. He had to develop himself really quite substantially to be able to not just be drawn to her light, but find his own way to the light, kind of initiated by the experience of falling in love with her to start with. So Beatrice is one of his guides, in short. Does that mean there is also this sense of it's all about love, it's all about eros, but then eros with a a bigger E, and if you're confronted too early with eros as a concept, then you get stuck in eros with a smaller E, that you get attached to the, let's say, uh, the less divine expressions of love itself. Is that also kind of behind it? Yeah, I mean, again, Eros is one of these things that the Western version of Christianity hasn't dealt with so well, in my view, and partly because of the way that Eros typically awakens within us, which is through sexual desire or embodied desire. Um, 
and in Western Christianity, um, that has wanted to be guided through, say, teaching about marriage. Um, but the trouble is that it's also tended to confine it in a sort of box-marked marriage um, without really discussing um, and developing the wisdom about where Eros can lead. Um, but in figures like Plato, there was huge interest in Eros because it was recognised that it needs cultivating, it needs nurturing and discerning so the intellect comes in to understand what's being desired. But that is the path um, back to the divine, um, which Dante completely realises. And so he's one of the most important sources for um, the tradition of Eros leading back to God, um, which is, you know, can be found in other spiritual traditions yeah. as well. Sure. And it can be found in other spiritual traditions. And I also have this feeling that often it comes down to realising that love and the divine are always present, as you've said before. It's always already there. It's about us turning towards it, which also implies that when we talk about a concept like the spiritual journey, whether for people or for humanity, in a sense, in a lot of traditions, it's not so much as going somewhere as it is about hacking away all the unessentials until you reach rock bottom, so to speak, in the sense of finding the divine as the essence which was already there. So it's more about getting rid of stuff than it is about evolving into a higher spiritual creature or something. And that brings me back to this whole idea of the spiritual journey. In what sense is it actually a good metaphor to speak of a journey? It's In one moment, it feels like a journey. Um, but in another moment, it you realise you're just discovering what was always there. Um, you know, so our end is our beginning, as T.S. Eliot famously put it. So I think you need both, but you need to have both in different moments. Um, you know, similarly, this idea of evolution, in some ways it feels like an evolution. You feel yourself seeing things that you couldn't see before. And so that feels like it's developmental. But even as you see these things, you're realising that they were there always along. And so you're just becoming more familiar with that which is mm -hmm. present. Um, so it's not, um, an, it's not an advance, if you like. It is more yeah. of a return. Then if we come back to one of your main points in, in the secret, of, secret history of Christianity is, is about this individualism, that individuality originated at a certain point in time and that Christ is a certain embodiment of the type of monotheism slash individuality that originated at that time. But again, like I say, a bit of a counter-argument would be like, even, even if the Old Testament um, predominantly, or at least for a large part, kind of is not really monotheistic, but places Yahweh as the the main god, the, the the best god among all the others. Even if that's the case, then we can't deny the, let's say, the burning bush where Moses is uh, confronted with, and which basically says, I am the one who was, who is, and who always will be. So what you get there is this kind of 
monotheistic sense of the all-pervading divinity. It was already there in Moses. And like you say, uh, someone like Plato or many Greeks who considered themselves to be the the people who were um, uh, trying to bring new life to the wisdom tradition, which was already there before them, would they would sometimes refer to Moses as one of the great uh, wisdom tradition prophets or sages, let's say. So even the Greeks sometimes refer to him. So in that sense, again, in 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 what way can we truly speak of something different? Even if we take the, even if we keep in mind. The journey is sometimes it feels like a journey, but in another sense, it's always coming back to where you, what was there to start with. But let's take the perspective of a journey. In what sense can we speak for humanity as a whole as really a journey, as really something happening, individuality originating in that period? Well, let's t take the figure of Moses um, and, and see whether this uh, is helpful. The Moses that we know of in the Hebrew Bible is, I think, a, a reworking, um, which I would say is a deepening of older traditions about a figure called Moses. Um, we know that the books and sections that are written about Moses, for the most part, are exilic and post-exilic works. So this is to say the Hebrew people who'd lived in the land of Judah and had worshipped Yahweh originally as the god of Mount Zion, um, a god associated with place. Um, you know, a lot of the gods that are mentioned in the Hebrew Bible are gods of place. Um, but what happens to the Jews is that they're taken into exile when they're conquered by the Babylonians. Um, and so the question comes up as to what has happened to Yahweh. Is Yahweh still with us now that we're not living on Mount Zion and worshipping in the temple? Um, and I think that part of the reason why Yahweh becomes so central and, and becomes the name of the one monotheistic God is because, as you say, um, it's actually a name that's not a place. Um, it's the, the name, you know, I am, I always will be. Um, it's a, a name that can be interiorized and connect with having to carry your identity with you into exile as well. And so this suffering has this pattern of developing a sense of the divinity um, that hadn't really existed before. Um, you know, in, in my book, um, when I was looking into this, there's all sorts of rather wonderful details that um, help understand how this new perception might have emerged. So, for example... Um, at about the same time, Jews started calling themselves Jews, um, so as an ethnicity rather than just meaning the people of Judah. They started doing things like burying in single tombs or small family tombs, not wanting to be buried in the great ancestral lands. So again, a movement from place out there to place inside, developing the interiority that leads to individuality as we know it. And it, the same thing happens, I think, with the story of Moses, to come back to Moses. Um, you know, so Moses was seen to be the figure, a one figure who you could look at 
and see the divine radiance. So this is the beginnings of a kind of drawing of the divine presence into a person rather than, say, a place um, or a temple, rituals, um, that kind of thing. Um, but then also Moses, of course, leads the people of Israel on this great journey through the wilderness and never actually arrives himself. Um, you know, he sees the promised land and then dies. Um, moreover, it's very explicit that the burial place of Moses is not known to this day. Um, all these details, I think, are ways of telling a story that foster the interiority within you when telling the story of Moses. Um, and so that's why I think Moses becomes this hugely important figure at this time. Uh, more important, say, than older traditions around Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, the old patriarchs. They remain, of course, they're still in the Bible, but you can see, this is one of the wonderful things about modern biblical scholarship and why it's not um, a threat to religious understanding, it's a deepening of religious understanding, as it shows how um, things change, which shows how spirituality deepens. And, you know, hence the story, of the metaphor of the journey is an important yeah. part of and that. And if we... I don't know if that, you find that illuminating yeah, or persuasive I, I at all. Rather persuasive, but um, still, first, let's put Jesus in, into the whole narrative then. If if we've got interiority, individuality, and the interiority leads you to the realization of um, the divine essence behind everything, and so you stop identifying as such with things outside of you, and then... What's the, the, the point of Jesus in that particular moment in time? Well, I think Jesus comes at the end, or, or the culmination, say, not the end because it continues, obviously, but at the culmination of this realising that God is one and the oneness can be known within us as well. Um, you see it partly in Jesus' teaching. Um, so I think that parables, for example, are not moral tales. When you actually look at the parables, a lot of them are actually rather immoral but what they are, are tales that try to jolt us out of um, an older understanding or maybe even a moral understanding um, to realise something deeper. Other teachings of Jesus continually stress interiority. You know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Um, go into a secret place and pray to your father who is there in secret. Um, there's only one prayer of Jesus that is collective, actually. It's the one that's best known, the Our Father. Um, which is said altogether, but all of Jesus's other prayers are private prayers, you might say, so foster that sense of interiority. Um, Jesus withdraws, um, seems to be almost on a daily basis, he withdraws, but certainly has um, periods of major withdrawal, like going into the wilderness, um, as remembered in Lent, um, to return, not just to withdraw, but to return. Um, and so, you know, I think all these activities which personally, I think, were features of the historical Jesus's life, were him becoming more and more aware of um, this truth of being one with the divine, but also were remembered because people realised that that was this awareness unfolding in the life of Jesus and therefore unfolding in their lives too. I mean, just, just one more huge trend across the New Testament that you can see, I think, is the, the evolving awareness of apocalyptic ideas. 
and apocalyptic ideas are another thing that start to emerge in the Hebrew and actually in the Hellenistic tradition in the centuries before Christ, um, I think meeting the need to ask if the individual is so important and being good is so important, why is it that good individuals die seemingly unjust deaths? So that leads to the sense that somehow God must return in order to put that right. And so you have apocalyptic ideas, last judgment ideas and so on that develop. Um, but Jesus seems to have realised there was a further step required there, which is that the kingdom of God is already within you. Um, you know, so in Luke particularly, there's these phrases which are remembered, which must go back to Jesus, I think, where Jesus says, people will say, is it here? Is it there? I say to you, no, the kingdom of God is within you. And then he adds it with phrases like, it's not what comes into a man that matters, but what comes out of a person that matters. Um, and I think you can see Paul wrestling with this. You know, sometimes in the early Paul, like in 1 Thessalonians, there's clearly older ideas about the apocalypse, the second coming, will we'll be gathered together in the clouds and so on. But later Paul, I think, realised that um, his mind was taking on the mind of Christ, that this apocalypticism was actually an inner transformation that he was increasingly knowing. And then, of course, the latest, probably the latest gospel in the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, sorry, um, John's gospel, doesn't have apocalyptic teaching at all, but says in this, in, instead, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word came into the world um, and the light has been known amongst us. Um, so it's, it's uh, something that's happened and that we can know now too. So I think you can see the development of apocalypticism too as reflecting on this journey towards greater sense of knowing it now. And that kind of brings us back to Dante as well in the sense of he's, he's one of the figures that lives in a tradition that had this type of interiorizing, journeying to the essence ID. And he's just a, a brilliant poetic example of of that tradition but if that's a, something that evolved within humanity this new interiorized sense of the essence of existence um how do you look at this other uh trend uh, at least of the last 500 years and you you kind of refer to it way at the beginning of our conversation. And I thought, oh, I need to pick up on this later because you, you were talking about the decoupling. Because in a sense, this whole interiority is also the thing that allows you to decouple from life as such. You, you kind of get this Cartesian split between what's inside is my mind and what's outside is the rest of the world. And so in that sense, it, it completely deviates from what you would see as the logical pro progression in a spiritual sense in humanity, interiorizing so that you find the mystical basis of life. But well, mysticism was dropped. And what you get is somehow a return to the position of people where they are actually the... I'm looking for the English word here. There's a nice word in... In Dutch, well, it comes down to the billiard ball or the, the ball in a, a flipper game or something. Uh, so in our case, you're not determined by the whims of the gods, but you're determined by the 
the natural laws of life, let's say, and choice doesn't matter too much because everything is physical and chemical reactions in any case. That kind of scientist mentality is, in a sense, a complete return to the concept of fate and externalities determining your whole life. But at the same time, it's coupled with a a huge sense of interiority. Me, that's inside, as a mind and has nothing to do with the rest of the world. So you've got this kind of bizarre duality going on there. When you look at it from the perspective of of an evolution, of a spiritual evolution in humankind, something strange seemed to have happened there. I think it's an old pattern, but one with a particular modern inflection. Um, It's the sense of becoming alienated from the world, you know, which is another way of putting that split, and not knowing how you participate in the cosmos anymore. And that happens with modern science, with its quest for objectivity. Um, But that has the upside of developing the sense of the individual even more, because you're sort of thrown onto yourself. You have to try and make meaning It's not at all obvious to us that meaning flows and floods all around us, as was the case um, in the medieval and the ancient world. You know, Aristotle, I mentioned before, he never asks what's the meaning of life. For him, it's always how do we engage with the meaning that is around us. But we have to ask um, that because of our alienation. But that requires us to develop. Um, And then that moment of development becomes the kind of precipitating moment that enables us to realise what was present and is around all the more and engage with it all the more freely, all the more consciously. Um, You know, modern individuality can slip into individualism um, where, you know, it's seen as a kind of fight against all the other individuals around you. But of course, it also... um, leads to valuing the individual and so you know everybody should have an education women and men everybody should have a say in society um, and values such as equality and justice and so on Um, now these cause a lot of problems and tensions which we're very aware of now um, but they come from the effort to understand how the individual matters in relation i think to the all um, in a way, we're at a moment now where we know the individual matters, but we're not quite sure in what way. So things like freedom become very confused. We know that the individual needs freedom from interference that would coerce and destroy um, wherever that's possible. Um, but we're not quite sure what our freedom is for. Um, this was a famous distinction made by the philosopher Isaiah Berlin. It's not just mine. Um, and so I think that's our great challenge now, certainly in the West, Um, you know, where there's a lot of discussion about freedom again and calls and celebrations of freedom. Well, we need to ask more and more, I think, what's our freedom for? Um, Not just are we seeking to be free from. I I like that distinction. And a lot of people on the spiritual side of life who are not so much um, embedded within the scientist worldview or the materialist worldview, which is pretty widespread, but a lot of people who feel the disconnect and who feel the alienation and run towards more spiritual ideas. 
used to be kind of bundled together with the name New Age, which is a, an awful name in itself, but at least it refers to those groups of spiritual people who considered that they would come a new age, the Aquarius age, and in that age, all of a sudden, all this purely materialist view of life would go away and everybody would become uh, a new spiritual being and so on. In a sense, there's also this evolutionary uh, or spiritually evolutionary trajectory there. So how would you align and or distance yourself from this, again, quite popular idea about... Uh, among a lot of spiritual groups of today? Well, I think that the idea of the New Age actually could only have been born in a Christian context because, of course, the Bible, the, the New Testament's full of expressions like new life, um, new beginnings, um, you know, the idea that being reborn is to be remade anew, um, that um, the fulfilment of creation is creation made anew. Um, it's a very powerful Christian image appropriated again, you know, in the modern world with this notion of the new age. I mean, I mentioned positive psychology before and how that, I think, gets sort of half the story, but not the other half of the story. I think that a lot of um, talk about the new age now too gets sort of half the story, but not the other half of the story. And it can happen like this. So it's a complicated old, you know, very diverse field. But one of the ways which I think it happens is actually is the story that somehow human beings are evolving or emerging is a word that's often used into a more and more advanced consciousness um and that you know we're on the on the precipice where we could fall but also it could be um the moment of inflection where a new age is born um and you know we'll we'll, we'll sort of step into a, a advanced ways of being that our ancestors didn't know about and so on uh, i think that that is muddling the spiritual insight with a progressive scientific insight which tends to see things in linear ways um it gets confused um it confuses the advance of technology which undoubtedly happens with spiritual advance but you know going all the way back to plato plato said that spiritual advance is not like the accumulation of something um it's much more like the remaking of something um, in every life, in, in every, every age. age. Um, yeah, he said it's not like, he said that spiritual advance is not like water that can be poured from a jug into a glass as if spiritual advance can just sort of be poured into you. Um, it's something that you have to make um, and that's part of what it is to be free. But by drawing on guides, by drawing on traditions, by being connected to your times, going into life more and more, that's how it's born. Um yeah, so, but I think that's that's the problem with the new age is that it's a bit too beholden to, um, it's sometimes called positivism, um, not positive psychology, but positivism, which is the 19th century idea that, and you mentioned it, that humanity goes from kind of mythological through metaphysical to um, modern material and more technological ways of being in the world. You know, there's, there's something in that, but I think it's primarily 
the way that technology has developed. It's not about yeah. actually addressing the it's, nature it's of the soul. It's interesting to see a connection between positivism and positive thinking, um, which are completely different words, but there is a connection there somehow. Um, and I like your nuance about spiritual growth not being this linear concept because one of my problems with the whole idea about spiritual growth is that there's also this somehow colonial aspect even to it that and it's even in my eyes one of the the greatest spiritual vices that you go a spiritual path you're trying to grow as a person but because you're growing you feel yourself as a more developed a human being than others. You're more spiritually advanced than others. And if you put that on mankind, then that's what I mean. It, it becomes a bit colonial. Our society is more spiritually advanced than the others. And for me, that's a really problematic uh, concept, uh, which obviously from everything you've said is not what you think. But I'm, I'm just wondering within that, like... Um, vice of hubris that's basically what it is what's dante's an answer to to come back to him because i i guess he has an answer to that problem he he probably also uh, simply by by looking at the trajectory that he writes about but he must have thought a whole lot about that problem of spiritual hubris because hubris is one thing but spiritual hubris is a is a really ugly one in the sense that it because you feel so spiritual, you, you're blinded to the the hubris that's behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's in a way the sin of pride, um, which is a big one. Um, it's not quite present on every page of the Divine Comedy, but it's never far away. Um, and, you know, I think the mistake that's made, again, it's, it's a, a mistake that can easily characterise the modern world because we have a sense of not just advance, but also of power, as if we somehow can control and make these things. Um, but it's, 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 maybe it's, the, it's about possession. Um, it's as if, you know, we have it, and therefore others don't have it. Um, now, that might be a charitable moment, and therefore we want to give it to others, although that then leads to, you know, in the yeah. colonial critique, the idea yeah. of the white yeah. saviour and so on. But I think the mistake is to realise that it's not that we have this understanding, we have this life, we can make it, but that it, it has us, um, you know, that ultimately God has us, that with the wisdom has us, language speaks us, advance invites us. Um, it's not that we make advances. Um, and so again, a bit like, you know, the new age that um, cuts off the sense of return or the positive thinking that cuts off the, the role of death and suffering. Um, so too, this notion that we've got it, that we're advancing, makes the mistake of not seeing that actually it's when we let go into life more and more fully that we realise ourselves more and more fully. Beautiful. Mark, thank you very much. This was a, an enlightening and for me at least, very interesting conversation. Yeah, well, look, thank you for the interest and for asking the questions because that's a crucial part of it. You know, that's another reflection on this dynamic that it's only when you are challenged in a way um, to say a little bit more, to see whether it keeps, the story you're telling keeps giving you new insights that you 
you know, you, you realise that maybe it is something that you're um, understanding more and more fully. So um, I appreciate the conversation too.